0: When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode two of this study of the book of Exodus, and this is the story from the Old Testament that... um, that reveals God's power in the Jewish nation, that God would rescue them out of slavery in Egypt, and that God would continue to bless them so that they could be a blessing in the world around them. And if you look at Jewish history, this is probably the most significant event in any Jewish person's worldview. If you're a Christian, the most significant event of history is when God became man, dwelt among us, um, died, rose again, and that, that event in history is the central point of all of history because it's the, it's the point at which God comes down. Well, if you're Jewish, that central point of Jewish history is that God would rescue you from slavery in Egypt. It was God's amazing power to do all of that work. And the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. And Moses is the central character of this story. So Moses is like a precursor of Jesus uh, in some ways. He is like a type of Jesus in some ways. And so Moses is the central character in the story of the Exodus is the central story. So that's why it's so important. And we looked at Genesis, and I called that the backstory to this story. All right. So, um, yesterday we read about how the Israelites had ended up in Egypt, and a new Pharaoh came into power that didn't know the old Pharaoh or the power of the Egyptian, the power of the Israelites, and the great blessing that the Israelites were to the Egyptian nation. We talked a little bit about how the, 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 the this, this Egyptian people had within them this tribe, this Israelite tribe, and they were very wary about the Israelite tribe because we're always wary about the outsiders. We love to wrap our arms around a group of people and say, this is us, and everybody outside of that isn't us. And so the Egyptians could have wrapped their arms around the Israelites and said, they're part of us also. And I think a wise ruler would do that, but if you're trying to gain power, sometimes it's helpful to create an enemy. And so this new pharaoh was creating an enemy of the Israelites. And things if they could have if Egypt could have simply allowed the Israelites to be part of their nation but separate, then everything would have been okay. But this pharaoh didn't allow the Israelites to be part of their nation and separate. He said, we, everybody but the Israelites are Egypt and the Israelites are foreigners in our land and we don't like them. And that's what sets up this whole story in the book of Exodus. And I believe it's human nature for leaders to find an enemy, to point to that enemy and say they're the enemy so that they can elevate their power and we talked a little bit yesterday about how jesus destroys all of that by saying my kingdom is not of this earth my kingdom is of a different earth and all it takes to enter my kingdom is to be believe and be baptized and be in my kingdom and now you are part of a kingdom that's better than any kingdom on this earth and my kingdom my rule my domain i'm the king of this kingdom we have one mission. And that mission is to love the world around us. So it's really a great, if you think about Jesus and just who he is and and uh, the great blessing that he brings to this world. Because we've got a lot of conflict in this world right now. We have a lot of people pointing fingers at the other, saying you're not worthy of you know living on this earth. You're not worthy of, of resources from our nation. You're not worthy of anything, and. That is not a healthy way to live, but it's part of humankind. It's 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 the fallen nature. We're always gonna do this. The only cure for this truly is if everybody could live their life as Jesus showed us. And if Christians, if the if the Christian church on earth could be the church on earth and love and spread this wonderful this way of life that Jesus talked about we would redeem this world we would get rid of all the pointing of the fingers at the sub people you know in nations and, and people who act differently like us, look differently like us but still are part of the of God's family that he created so but it takes a, it takes a pretty wise leader to get to that point. Um, and wise leaders, um, you know, I'm not talking about anything in the United States today. I'm, I'm just talking about, cause there's a lot of stuff behind that, but wise leaders will try to help the foreigner come in and be welcome. I, I think, um, but not so welcome that they destroy us. So, I mean, that, that's a problem too. Um, all right. And here, see, I'm even talking like that. That's horrible. All right. So, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna go into, so we finished up at verse uh, we finished up at verse 10. And so now we're going to read in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 1. So they put slave masters over them. This would be the Israelites. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they, the Israelites, built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So, and this is a story too about life. The the Israelites, well, let me put it this way. The Egyptians were... The, the major dominating force of Egypt and they probably were of a culture that didn't multiply as quickly as the Israelites the Israelites were oppressed and they multiplied much more quickly and we see this in nations around the world the more educated and fi- I don't even to educate it's more the more financially uh, stable and rich a nation becomes, then they tend to have less people, that they, they tend to have less offspring. Now, I don't know how, I mean, because they didn't have birth control back at this point. So I'm guessing that what they would do uh, just based upon what I'm seeing here is that they would, uh, if, if they had it, if they wanted only two children and you know the mother got pregnant and she had a child, maybe they would kill that child. That was very, very, in uh, non-Abrahamic religions, non-Christian religions around the world, that was a very, very natural thing to do. If you only wanted to have you know, a certain number of children, you'd call the herd, as it were. And th- this, this was popular. And, and so I'm assuming that must have happened in Egypt also, because we're going to see that. But the Israelites didn't believe in that. They believed that children were a gift from God, they believed that children had souls. Remember, in Egypt, the only person that was a god was Pharaoh. He was treated as a god, and so that everybody served Pharaoh, and so whatever Pharaoh said, they did. And they didn't really necessarily see themselves um, as having a soul apart from Pharaoh, if that makes sense. But the Egypt, the Israelites did believe that they had. This, this soul apart from, a, a, you know, each individual was a unique creation of God in, in the Israelites. And they believed that very much. And so when they had children, they would not get rid of these children. They would add these children because it didn't cost them anything. If you're a nomadic tribe living out in the wilderness, the more children you have, the more people you have, you know, to build up the pride, the, the tribe and give you power. And so you want more, you want this tribe to grow. You want it to, you want your children to grow and all that sort of thing. But when you become a wealthy nation like Egypt, then you don't necessarily want that as much. You want maybe to invest more resources in each child um, and and have fewer children. And this, we've seen this even across, so as the United States and Europe, as they've become dominant and wealthy in the world, their birth rate, replace so the replacement rate of children is about 2.1. So if you can have, on average, 2.1 children per couple, then the population stays stable. If it's less than 2.1, the population decreases. And if it's more than 2.1, the population increases. And right now, the native population in Europe is like Uh, is like 1.6 or something like that. The native population of Europe, the white Anglo-Saxon native population of Europe is dramatically decreasing. And there's an influx of people, foreigners, coming into Europe that don't have that. Their mentality is the more children we have, the the more blessing. And so they come in and they have a large number of children and so you can see that the population shift between native-born Europeans and immigrants into Europe is shifting dramatically. And that's causing a lot of problems in Europe because the native population of Europe is not necessarily friendly to this to this populations coming in. It's further complicated in that the native population of Europe has historically been a Christian Europe, and all the cathedrals and everything about Europe is Christianity, but all of the people that are coming into Europe right now that are that are not native-born, the foreigners that are coming in, are all Muslim. And so that's changing the nature of the European religion. And that's causing a lot of problems, too, because uh, they're... Um, The the most of the churches, if you've if you've been to Europe in the last 10, 20, 30 years, most of the churches are empty on Sunday morning and the mosques are full. And that's an interesting indictment on the Christianity in Europe. And we could we would have the same thing here in the United States. But our influx of migration of people comes from the south of Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Panama, all of these countries. And they're predominantly Roman Catholic. And so when they come in the United States, they're bringing Roman Catholicism, but it's interesting that the native Roman Catholicism in the United States is still declining, even with the influx of people from Mexico. The percentage of people in the United States in 2007, I just looked up the statistic, in 2007, uh, 25% of the United States was Roman Catholic. Seven years later, in 2014, it's 21% is Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church is declining dramatically here in the United States, Dramatic. I mean, if you think about 4% loss of the total population in the United States in, that was Roman Catholic, leaving the Roman Catholic Church in seven years, that's just, in 20 to 50 years, Roman Catholicism won't exist. Where are they going? Some of them are are becoming nuns. They don't follow any religion. A lot of them are actually going to other Protestant and other denominations. So, for whatever reason, now Pope Francis was supposed to kind of halt this bleeding. Everybody thinks that the problem is is that Ratzinger was too much of a conservative, and so they brought in a liberal pope. But that hasn't that hasn't really stopped the bleeding either, and. um I I have my reasons why I believe that it's bleeding, uh, but I'm not the Pope, and I'm not going to advise the Roman Catholic Church. But um, but I don't think it's the Pope, uh, per se. Like, which Pope it is is not going to change this, this bleeding that's happening in the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, uh, I don't know how we got to that point. I am so sorry. That was a major, major, major tangent. But the... We we were talking about how the there's just this bifurcation. You've got the Egyptians, that their native-born population of Egypt. You even have native-born uh, because they were born in the land of Egypt. The, this tribe of Israel, but they were they became slaves. Over time, one of these pharaohs put them into slavery. And how how do you put like if you are a follower of of Yahweh if you are a, in the tribe of of Israel and you're uh, in Egypt, how is it that you allow yourself to become enslaved? That doesn't seem like it's even possible. But the population of Egypt outside of Israel was very, very, very large. It was a very large, powerful. It was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And it was all centered in Egypt. And in this little tribe of Israelites was very small, and so of course they had no power, they had no voice and there are people even today in the United States that have no voice uh and so it is easy to to enslave them, maybe at one point they paid them, but you know the way that they moved people around and all the you know and, and the power that they had and the weapons that they had and the and the Israelites didn't have any, it was very easy for them at some point to. To force them into labor and into slavery, and so they did this, and then they built these great, huge cities, Pithom and Ramses. Not entirely sure the uh, archaeologists have not figured out where these cities are. They were store cities for pharaohs, so they were probably close to, um, you know, to uh, to the central part of of Egypt. They were probably, um, you know. Uh, Anyway, um, they were in Egypt, but we're not entirely sure exactly where where these these cities were. And the Egyptian archaeologists and other archaeologists have been trying to find out where these cities are. Uh, don't know. there's a couple I was just looking up before before the podcast started this this started trying to find out exactly where, these locations were and basically a number of scholars identified the locations as the archaeological site of Tel el Mashuta others identified the earlier archaeological site of Tel el Ratiba so it's not like you know they had good maps back then saying exactly where these sites were but Nobody seems to really know where these sites are, and, and that's probably not important to our story. It would be interesting to know where they are, but, but that's not necessarily part of our story. Um, but they became oppressed. They, the Egyptian uh, tyrants worked the slaves ruthlessly. They made their life bitter with harsh labor and bricks and mortar with all kinds of works in the field. When you are a wealthy, wealthy nation, it's easy to take advantage of people who are not part of your nation. Uh, It's easy to bring in foreigners and work them as slaves. And we have done this in the United States. Uh, Other places have done this. It's It's a great source of cheap labor to bring in people. Even if you pay them, it's a great source of cheap labor. And then you can You can build up your, you know, all all the stuff that you want to present to the world. you, You know, you can, in the Egyptian, in the Egyptian culture, it was the pyramids. They brought in these great pyramids and the storehouses that probably looked like pyramids and all these great things. It took a lot of slave labor to do that. And the Egyptians were great at it. But the slaves, unfortunately, they had a very, very bitter and harsh life. And they had a culture that they had to uphold, too. They were trying to maintain their culture to remember God. One of the commandments of God was to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so at one level, these these Israelite slaves needed to have a day off. And they probably begged and pleaded with the Egyptians to have a day off. And my guess is that at some point, the Egyptian um, slaveholders would not even let them have a day off. And they worked them in bitter, 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 difficult conditions that were killing them. And if they needed more, you know, they were they were having more kids. And so they would put them into slavery. And I can imagine over the course of generations that the life of an uh, Israelite slave in Egypt was horrible. It was bitter. It was like being in a concentration camp or... or Living in the deep south in the early part of the of the United States, under a horrible slave holder, or many many different places around the world and many different times around the world, where you have people that are oppressing a whole nation of people so that they can get wealth and gain, you know, gain power and influence over the world. But we go on. Verse fifteen: The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifrach and Puah. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl let live. So this is, um, this is the mistake of Pharaoh right here, it probably would have been okay if they had allowed the tribe to have children. But the pharaohs were saying, no, if they have males, then they can have reproducing these males. Um, these males, if, if we can control the male population, then we'll control the population of the Hebrews. But if they're living in slavery, you've got to wonder what he was thinking about because you'd want the males to be out there working in the slavery to make bricks and to do all that hard labor. But my guess is, is that Pharaoh thought, well, we'll just have the women do this work, right? Well, once they, once they become old enough, we'll have them work for a number of years and then they can bear kids and we'll make a very subservient, you know, mostly female society. It's kind of messed up when you think about it. It's um in the, in other slavery traditions across the world and throughout time, the it's, you know, some slaves were the, some of the most valuable working slaves were the male slaves. And so the thought of getting rid of all the boys is just kind of stupid. If you think about it, but when you're, when you are, have that much power, right? When you are the Pharaoh of Egypt, you talk to your advisors and you become very insulated and you do really, really, really stupid things. And, so now not only are they working, you know, working the, Israelite, the, the Israelites as hard as they can, but now they're oppressing them by saying, if you have a boy, we're going to kill the boy and, uh, and, and we're not going to let them live. So uh, interesting about these, uh, these midwives, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shipra and Puwah, um, Shipra, Shifra is, uh, it does not look like a Hebrew name. It looks like an Egyptian name. Ra is the sun god, uh, uh, Ramses, Ra, all those kind of things. Yah is more of a Hebrew name, or El is a Hebrew name. So he said to these Hebrew midwives, they may not have been Hebrew, I'm guessing, but they may have been midwives to the Hebrew nation so they are they are part of the wealth and the economy of Egypt and and so when the hebrew women were having babies these i believed egyptian he midwives from would come into the hebrew tribe and help them have children but they were not even though they were midwives that um that were trying to follow, trying to follow Egypt. They did not feel like they could kill these boys. They just simply couldn't do it. And when when Ramses or whoever it was, the the pharaoh came and said, "Hey, why are they still growing? Why are we still seeing boys?" They said, "Well, we can't kill them because by the time we get there, the children are already born." And of course, it was a huge lie. Uh, and so Pharaoh gives this horrid command. So the the midwives thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to bypass this. We're going to let this nation grow. But then Pharaoh does this horrible thing. He says, if we see any boy, period, even after they're born, if it's a boy and they're born even after, then we're going to throw him into the Nile River and we're going to drown them. But every girl that we're going to live. And I, this is what happens when people get too much power. They don't, they don't, they don't become human. They, um, their power becomes insular. This is why uh, major dictators across the across the history of humankind have just become drunk with power and done horrible things to maintain their power, and uh, have become almost inhuman. If if all, if you think you are. Well, who was it? It was Lord Acton that said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is part of the fallen condition also. That the more power you get, the more you you become inward focused and insular and everybody, because you have so much power, you surround yourself with what we call yes men or yes women, where you say, hey, I have this idea. And they say, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. Nobody ever challenges the power. And so you end up doing stupid things And this is what happens in Pharaoh's time. And this is only going to increase tensions between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Amazingly going to increase tensions. It's horrible. But this is where we are. So I think we'll leave the story here because um, this sets up then for an amazing event that happens in Exodus chapter 2. And we're just going to get into that tomorrow. So let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the beauty of this day. Um, Lord, be with us and fill us with your love and your peace and your joy throughout the rest of the day until we meet again tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.